Okay, we're continuing this morning in Colossians chapter 3, looking at verses 5 to 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for the word that you give us in these few verses. Oh Lord, it, um, it, it changes the way that we go forward. It, it gives us heart. It gives us strength. You have changed everything for us. The natural instinct is the way forward is by our effort to, to reach for something that we haven't obtained. To fight, to earn a victory that isn't ours. But Lord, you reverse everything by the gospel. You, you turn everything upside down and you make it all right. And I pray, Father, that this gospel-centered sanctification is something that we would understand today. Help us, help us to grasp it in our minds and in our hearts and help us to live it in the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, as we hear your word this morning, please, according to your grace and mercy in Jesus, give us your spirit. May all vain thoughts and imaginations be put away and may our eyes be wide open and fixed on our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name I pray, amen. Back in Colossians chapter 2, we saw Paul in, in verses 16 to 23 in particular, warning us about all of the ways that Satan would offer us through human false teaching for our sanctification, a way forward for spiritual progress, advancement, and fulfillment. And so all of these different ways... Um, we're, we're being spelled out in those several verses. And we know, you know, there's a multitude of ways. We talked about Satan throwing us any number of ropes out of the, the pit of sin and shame so we can move forward again. But all of the ways that Satan would push us toward are dead ends. They're all a dead end. So in verse, look back in chapter 2, if you would, briefly. We're going to just look over verses 18 and 19 again because I want us to pick up from verse 19 the the phrase I was just telling you, um, I've told you a couple times already, how how much I love this phrasing from the ESV in chapter 19. Let's read verses 18 and 19, chapter 2. God's Word says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions. All of these different ways, again, Satan offers to us as a way forward spiritually, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head. Now he is showing us, in brief, 
how we are sanctified and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Every believer wants to grow, but we must not be satisfied with anything less than growing with the growth that is from God. And that's the phrasing I love. I'm not sure if there's any other translation that uses it. This is the ESV's translation, that we grow with a growth that is from God, truly growing by His power and the way pleasing to Him. So to, to that end, verse 19 indicates that we must hold fast to the head. The body of Jesus must hold fast to the head. We must press into Christ. Now, in chapter 3, we're getting into the meat of this application. We have been focusing so much on um, how we are united to Christ now. We have a new identity in Christ. We've been raised with Him. We're alive to God in Him. And so we are changed. So as we are new in Christ, we must become who we are in Him. We have been made alive to God. Now we must become practically, in our lives, who we are are already in Jesus. I, I want to uh, impress upon you as we get started this morning how liberating gospel-centered sanctification is. And you know what I mean by sanctification, right? I'm talking about the process of spiritual growth into holiness for every believer that continues all of our lives until we are with Jesus. Gospel-centered sanctification is liberating. But this self-sanctification that Paul was exposing in chapter 2, that's, that's enslaving. It's, uh, and just ultimately is completely discouraging. It's a dead end. But this is liberating. I, I want you to realize what, what the difference is. You see, the way that people think about spiritual change and holiness, naturally, they think that you are changing your practice in order to change your identity. That's just the natural way we think. But that's not the way that the Bible thinks. That's not the way that the gospel speaks. You're not changing your practice to change your identity. You're changing your practice to match your identity, which is already yours, new, in Jesus. You're not working to lay hold of what isn't yours. And you're not trying to become which you're not. This is how the gospel changes everything. Our pursuit of holiness and change, as John Piper puts it, in gospel-centered sanctification, we are acting out the miracle which Christ has performed. We're fighting in Christ's victory. There are mindsets and there are attitudes that Paul exposes in these verses. Look, look back down at verse 5. He, he presents to us this vice list. So we have these mindsets and attitudes and talk and behaviors that all oppose Jesus. They're earthly, not heavenly. And Paul says in uh, verse 5, we must put them to death. But see, the gospel-centered way of being sanctified is to realize that the old you, which belonged to Adam and was born into the dominion of darkness, has already died. And so you are putting to death in you 
what belongs to that old and the, the earthly realm. First, he says in verse 3, you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Therefore, verse 5, put to death what is earthly in you. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? Again, you're not changing your practice to change your identity. You're changing your practice to match your new identity, which is yours in Jesus Christ. So God doesn't send you out self-dependent to earn victory over sin. It's the exact opposite of that. You go out against enemies that have already been defeated by the resurrection power of Christ. And that victory and that power, both are already yours in Jesus. You have been saved from and you have power over sin. So the gospel-centered way, let me press that again, the gospel-centered way of sanctification is that we are not fighting in our power for our victory, but living out His victory in His power, which are both ours in Christ, the victory and the power. So this doesn't mean, it, you know, so many people will quickly think, okay, Jesus has done it all for sanctification. Now I don't have to do anything. I can just laze about, laze my way into sanctification. And it's not that way at all. This means that we go into a bitter fight armed to the teeth, swinging the victor's sword and singing the victor's songs. Because even though we can suffer a real beating in this fight, we can't be beaten. And so we sing. And so we are strong in the Lord. So we have the command. Just as the old you, who was born into the dominion of darkness, has died, therefore put to death in you what belongs to that realm. Now let's uh, lay out uh, just the first few verses of this text. We have two vice lists here in chapter 3. We have the first one in verse 5. Then we have the second in verse 8. And we often see um, what are called vice lists in the New Testament, particularly in Paul's writings, and often we see them in tandem with a virtue list. And we're going to get to Paul's virtue list, uh, Lord willing, next week. Because there's one there, as you can see in verse 12. Uh, but today we're looking at these two vice lists. And I, I think that as we consider them, I mean, you just just scan over them briefly. You can see how these sins in each list, what they have in common with each other. The first sin of verse 5 that he mentions is sexual immorality. And normally we think of sexual immorality as sin committed with the body. But then following that, Paul attaches to it impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. He's speaking there of heart sins, sins of our affections and our feelings and desires and all of that. But they're attached to sexual immorality because Paul is really, he is showing us where the fight is. So in the first verse, uh, verse 5, we have sins. The thing that they have in common is that these are sins about drawing people to you in order to use them. Just in order to use them for your own personal pleasure. 
In verse 8, Paul starts with inward sins, anger, wrath, and malice, and then he speaks and goes in the direction of outward sins. And what these sins have in common is not that they want to draw people in, but that they want to divide from people. They don't want to use people for pleasure. They want to cast people off because they have failed to please. So that's uh, the direction Paul is going. So let's let's study this in detail. Again, verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Again, normally we think of sexual immorality uh, as, as that sin committed with the body. And it is that, but it's also deeper than that. And it doesn't start there. Where does sexual immorality start? It doesn't start outwardly, it starts inwardly. That battle against sexual immorality is fought within us, and so that's where Paul's focus is. The sins that you commit with your body correspond to your heart. And if you've already given your affections over to lust, then with time and opportunity, your actions are going to follow them. So what is it that constitutes sexual immorality? God has reserved sexual activity for the one man, one woman bond of marriage. So any sexual activity outside of the sacred covenant bond of marriage between one man and one woman is sexual immorality. So that covers everything from homosexual sex to pornography to heterosexual lustful fantasy. All of that would be included in sexual immorality. And again, Paul's focus is on what is going on in the heart and in our minds. So what are you dwelling on? And what are your desires? Where does your mind go when you're tired, when you're bored, when you're feeling lonely, feeling stressed? Where does your mind go? What do you imagine? Look at verse, uh, look at verse five again, the end of it. The last sin that he identifies as being part of this sexual immorality is covetousness. He says it is idolatry. He wants, Paul wants us to feel the weight and the seriousness of this sin. The covetous heart wants pleasure above all else and is willing to use people to have that pleasure. It's consumed with pleasure. And that's what makes it idolatry. Rather than being consumed with God, the, the God of holiness, it's consumed with pleasure instead. Rather than with things that are eternal, with you know, things that are obviously very temporal. Sexual immorality is a very powerful sin. It, it takes hearts and it takes minds completely over it. It fires the affections with lust before the act and then after the act it fills the heart with shame. It's the sin that consumes people. And so there's no negotiating with this sin. You know, we don't come to the negotiating table to deliberate with sexual immorality about what we're going to do. Just like the United States has certain enemies, you know, that it refuses to negotiate with. It's pointless to get into negotiations with some enemies. And that's the way it is with sexual immorality. You don't deliberate. Because sexual immorality wants you to come to the table and this is what it will say. Yes, just this once. 
Just a little bit more. And that's all. I I won't bother you after that. I promise. I'll leave you alone. But if you negotiate with this sin, you've already lost. Because you've agreed to sin, to some sin, and also, it's not going to stop there. You will come out on the short end every time. There is no negotiating with this sin. And so we need to cultivate in our hearts and minds a bitter hatred for this enemy. We need to cultivate a bitter hatred for it so that when it calls to us to come to the negotiating table, we respond, I would rather stab myself in the eye. Which is something like what Jesus said. Right? In verse 6, Paul shows us the future of this sin. And then in verse 7, he's going to show us the past of this sin, which is very encouraging. But first, what's the future of sexual immorality? He says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming against the sin and those who are unrepentant. The wrath of God is, is coming. There, there is real pleasure in sexual sin. We can't deny that. That's why anyone goes to it, whether they're uh, actual, actually uh, acting out sexual immorality or just playing it out in the mind. I mean, even in, in the thought, if all of those uh, things are just happening in fantasy, in our imagination, it still is a part of sexual immorality. The pleasure is short. Paul is saying the pain is long. The pleasure is short and the pain is long. Our world has taken sides. And it has chosen sexual immorality over God. And sexual immorality in turn has enslaved the world. The world is captive to this sin. We're seeing it more and more all the time. In fact, I think a little bit, the world is beginning to, to see and to broadcast publicly the repercussions of this sin. And uh, there's such um, such bitter consequence for those who do the things that Hollywood has been encouraging in the culture for decades. The pleasure is short, but the pain is long. Will we join in the world and participate in these sins that oppose God? As if we despise God too? As if we despise the freedom that Jesus Christ has purchased for us with His blood? In verse 4 it said, when Christ who is your life appears, you also will appear with Him in glory. That's the day of our freedom. Don't you long for that freedom in Christ? To, to not only be free of you know, participating in this sin, but even the temptation to the sin. To be completely saved from the presence of it. Not just the penalty, not just the power, but the very presence of the sin. Don't you long for that day and long for that freedom? We may live in that freedom now. In 1 John, John talks about, you know, it hasn't yet appeared what we will be on that day. But we know that we'll be like Him. When He appears, we will be like Jesus. And so John says, 1 John chapter 3, so purify yourself now, just as He is pure. We're to live out our freedom in Christ already. Look at verse 7. 
Paul talks about the future of the sin, and now concerning us, he talks about the past of that sin. He says, in these two, you once walked when you were living in them. The future of this sin is death, and as far as we go, the past is already a death, a real death to this sin. When you died in Christ, you died to sexual immorality. There has been a fundamental decisive break with this sin. It doesn't have power over you anymore. The reason why that we participate in the sin is because on the front end, well, we give in to the front end lies. Those lies are the empty promises of, of pleasure that will relieve us of whatever we want to be relieved of. But we find out very quickly it was all just a lie. And the bitter shame and regret settles in. But the stumbling to the sin does not make you a slave. And we have to understand that. We have to get that. Stumbling to the sin of sexual immorality does not make you a slave to this sin. If you feel like you're a slave to this sin, you're just giving in to the back end lies. There's front end lies. Here's, here's a pleasure for you that will give you uh, relief and all the comfort that you want. And on the back end, you know, Satan, this is his way. He tempts you to sin and then he shames you for doing the thing that he tempted you to do. And part of that shame is to say you'll never be free of this. You are a slave to this. But you already have salvation from it and power over it. So we we tend to underestimate the power of this sin on the front end and then we overestimate its power on the back end of the sin. Sexual immorality is a particularly potent sin, but it is, it is not omnipotent. Your God is, is. Greater is He who is in you. When the old you died, you died to sexual immorality. It doesn't reign over you. Let's go on to verse 8. There's our first set of sins. And that's where the fight must be. Fight starts on the inside. Because that's where the sin starts. The second set of sins is, is different. It's not to draw people in to use them, but to divide from them. To cast them off because they've failed to please. In this set of sins, again, you can see that Paul starts with the heart and then he moves very naturally in the direction of the mouth. Verse 8 and the beginning of verse 9. He says, But you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Now, when you put these two lists together, I think that you can safely start with the last sin, of the first list and connect it to the first sin of the second list. The first sin of the second list is anger. And why are we ever sinfully angry with people? And the answer is because they haven't lived up to the desire that we've put on them. That's why we're sinfully angry. Because they haven't met our desire. We wanted something from them. And it might not have been something evil necessarily. It could have been something very natural and well and good. But the reason that we are angry is because we really felt like we deserved the thing. And when we feel that we deserve something from someone, it's no longer just a desire. It has escalated to the place of a demand. 
And when people invariably fall short of what we want from them, either because they're selfish like we are, or because they're not mind readers like we expect them to be, we get angry with them. Listen to what James says. He says, what causes quarrels? This is James chapter 4. This is such an important verse. Two verses. James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. So that's how the two sins, the the last one of the first list and the first one of the second list, connect together. We are sinfully angry because of our coveting. Because our desires have morphed into something more than just desires, they become demands. And of course, as James says in James 4, and Paul is saying here, we're not going to keep that anger to ourselves for very long. As Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the covetous, angry heart, the mouth speaks. If you are filled with sinful anger, it will always find the vent that is your mouth. If we're going to put these sins away, from lust to anger, Paul concludes with lying, we need to get our thinking right. Our thinking about people, especially. How you view people. Particularly, Paul is talking these Verses about sanctification are in context of the body of Jesus. And that's what we're going to bring out when we get to verse 11 next week. He's talking about the body of Christ. Salvation happens, or sanctification happens corporately, together. And so we need to think about each other rightly. If you view people as your servants, you're going to speak of them maliciously. Because inevitably they're going to let you down. If you view people as competitors, you're going to speak of them slanderously in order to put them down. If you merely objectify people, they're mere objects, you're going to speak of people obscenely. And if you fear people, you're going to speak to them lyingly. So we must follow what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 in our thinking of people. We must regard each other according to the flesh no more. If we refuse to regard people according to the flesh, we're going to speak of them and to them biblically. You see, as much as the Bible, as much as, you know, we've been talking throughout this about um, thinking of yourself according to who you are in Jesus. And that's so important for the sake of your personal holiness. But as much as the Bible encourages you to think of yourself as being in Christ, you must also think of your brothers and sisters for who they are in Christ. Remember that the Lord reconciled him and the Lord reconciled her to himself by his death, and he will present him, he will present her to himself in in splendor that is fitting heaven. That's how the Bible talks about your brothers and your sisters. 
do we think of each other that way? Or do we objectify people? Do we render them servants or competition in our minds? We must think of them biblically if we're going to speak biblically. If we see people through God's eyes, it will be your aim to see them built up. And every step that they take in spiritual growth will be to your personal joy. When we regard them biblically, we'll speak of them biblically. Let's look at verses, uh, the last of verse 9 and the beginning of 10. You see, the, the old thoughts, again, the old thoughts and the old speech, they don't define you anymore. They're not who you are. So Paul says, you know, put all of these away, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. And the, the language that he is using there of put off and put on is often used in terms of changing your clothes. So Paul is saying that we need to change our practice, not to change our identity, but to change our practice to match the identity that we have in Jesus. Now, I imagine uh, that in this setting, there would be probably a good many people who are indifferent to Queen Elizabeth II. Um, but I, I think that Queen Elizabeth II is um, an anomaly in our world, a total rarity. Here you have an individual who has been in this position of, this long-time position of great influence, who has proved to be a steadfast servant. How, how do you picture her in your mind? You know, probably whatever you associate with her, the picture you have is something dignified. Uh, whether you see her with, uh, you know, her royal robes, crown on her head, sitting on the throne, or giving her a queenly wave from the balcony, or even when she's amongst a throng of people, wherever she is, she always has dignity about her. So imagine Her Royal Highness stumbling through an alleyway, stooping every now and again to pick up a can and drop it into a squeaky old shopping cart that she's pushing in front of her. Imagine instead of wearing clothing fitting royalty, her clothes are raggedy, stained with alleyway grime and, and, and food stains from this dumpster that she's been rifling through. It's not a picture. It's not a look that matches the queen, is it? It doesn't match her identity. So Paul says who you are, your identity has changed. Therefore, your thinking and your desiring and your behaving must change. You're not changing your practice to change your identity. You're changing your practice to match the identity that you have. We were born in the dominion of darkness, completely dead to God. Now we have been transferred into the kingdom of light, fully alive to God. And our thinking and our talking and our behaving must match that. The old self has died, so we must put off the old practices. Those old practices, all of the, the things that Paul has listed in these two vice lists, the sexual immorality, the anger, the lying, all of that, those practices match the new self less than begging matches the queen. Those clothes of 
using people for my pleasure and then casting them off when they fail to please, they don't fit you anymore. They don't match who you are. They're not you. So Paul says, you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. I want you to be so encouraged by this verse. No matter where you feel like you are in putting off vice and putting on virtue in its place. I want you to be encouraged by this verse. Do you realize, first of all, do you realize what this new self means? Biblically, it's easy maybe that to, to think that Paul means we're putting on a, a new, bigger, brighter, better version of my old self that was just worn out and begging for replacement. So I've been, you know, I got refurbished or something like that. That's not what Paul is saying. He is saying that you have the life of Christ in you. He is saying that you have the life of the age to come. The eternal life. The life of the age to come has broken into the present by the Spirit and with the Spirit has come into you and remade you. That's what he means by new. Not bigger, brighter, better. He's talking about the life of eternity, the age to come, has been realized already in you. This is what he means by new. And notice, you need to understand the um, the two terms that he uses and the connection that Paul makes. He says, the new self is being renewed. It's new and then being renewed. And if we will get those terms and if we'll, if we'll take them to heart, we will understand gospel-centered sanctification. We'll understand it, we'll appreciate it, and we'll get after gospel-centered sanctification with heart and soul. If we understand new and therefore being renewed. It's so important. Because that matches what I've been saying all along. We're not changing. We're not being renewed to become new. We're not changing our practice to change our identity. We're new already and therefore being renewed. We're changing our practice to match the identity we already have in Jesus. This is precious. In growing with the growth that is from God, you're not trying to become what you aren't. You're not trying to become what you're not. You are conforming to who you are already in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you put on the new clothes of holiness, of course it looks like Jesus, but it also looks like you, believe it or not. It really looks like you. When you put on the old practices again, it doesn't fit you anymore. I mean, to put it mildly, it's an, it's an odd look. It's really actually horrendous because it's not you at all anymore. That's not who you are. When you put on what we're going to talk about in the next paragraph, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, 
meekness and patience, when you put these on, it doesn't look odd at all. In fact, it looks like who you really are. Do you get that? Do you understand that? That's so much better than Satan's way, all those, uh, the false teaching ways. You know, to taste not, touch not, handle not, all of that. Remember that? You know, the, the asceticism, the self-enforced physical suffering and um, deprivation. This is so much better. It's not about law, legalism, do this in order to earn this. No, it's not that at all. This is liberating. And there's one more thing I want to add as we come to a close. One more thing from these two verses. We have put on the new self, which is being renewed. And this harkens back to what I was saying back in chapter 1 when we were talking about gospel growth. And the common refrain from that sermon was, there is more for you. There's more for you. Wherever you are, in putting off vice and putting on virtue, there is more. It's not static. You haven't leveled off. You're not stuck. You're not stuck. There is more. You are being renewed in the Lord Jesus. So all of this thinking that goes, I'm a slave to this. I will never be free of this. I'll never overcome it. It's just part of who I am. It's part of who I will always be. It's a filthy lie straight out of hell to be rejected completely. You are new in Christ. And so there is more for you. In Christ, you are being renewed. And how are we renewed? By pressing into Jesus. What we've been saying this entire time. We press into Him to know Him. See, you are being conformed to the image that is uppermost in your mind. You hear me? You are being conformed to the image that is uppermost in your mind. Do you remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18? He says, where the Spirit of the Lord there is freedom. Freedom to do what? To behold the glory of the Lord. And beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another into the same image. Pressing into Him. To know Him. To know Him deeply. To know Him personally. To know Him intimately. And then you are conformed to the image of your Creator who is Himself the image of God. He is the one who made all things, who has promised to make all things new, and He has already started in you and me. We have the new life. So we're to live the new life in the power of the Spirit of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would understand the way forward the way to holiness. Not trying to become something we aren't, but striving to become who we are already in Christ. I pray that every person here would get it. And I pray that we would be freed by it. I pray that we would be empowered for it. To have victory 
renewed victory over all of these sins. We know on account of them, your wrath is coming. We know that they once defined us. But because of Jesus and the pouring out of the Spirit of Christ, they don't define us anymore. We're free. We're not slaves. We're free to be pure. We're free to become who we are in Jesus. So help us to get after it. Help us to pursue this holiness together, encouraging each other and building each other up as we go on to glory. We know, Father, what your promise is. You have promised to complete the work that you have begun in us at the day of Jesus Christ. Until that day comes, Father, may we continue to grow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.